All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of the Mike Sports Roundup. I have a great guest with me here, and that's Thomas Cavanaugh, our fellow WSJU Hello. radio host. Uh, great to have him here. We got a lot to talk about, Thomas. Yep. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. You know, it's just been quite a week for sports. We had conference championship football. Of course, we had a lot of college basketball. I think that that they're going to be taking the mantle soon as the sport everyone focuses on uh, just once the Super Bowl wraps up because, you know, everyone's going to be trying to get their binge in before March Madness begins. But uh, I'm doing pretty well, Mike. How are you doing? Pretty good, all things considered in this crazy world that we're still living in, but um, all pretty good. As long as sports is going on, we got a lot to talk about. So as you mentioned, the, the Super Bowl, um, we finally have our Super Bowl matchup and mm-hmm. the, the the goat against the, the kid, I guess they're calling it, the master versus the student, Patrick the Mahomes. the goat and the baby goat. Yeah, the bi- goat and the baby goat. Patrick yeah. Mahomes and the Chiefs taking on uh, Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. So how do we get there? And that was... We got there by the Buccaneers beat the Packers on Sunday, 31-26. Brady won 20 of 36, 280 yards, three touchdowns, three interceptions. Of course, the game was highlighted by that big Scotty Miller touchdown with uh, one second left in the second quarter to go straight into halftime, up 21-10. And, of course, the decision that is constantly talked about with the Green Bay Packers deciding not to go for it on fourth and goal with under two minutes left to go, decides to kick a field goal, then hit it back to Tom Brady to clean out the clock. So, Thomas, what were your thoughts on watching the game? Complete coward's move to go for the field goal with about fourth and short. Fourth and goal, mind you, actually. I should preface it by that. I mean, you're down by eight. You don't even know if you're going to get the ball back, which the Packers didn't. Oh, wait, did I just? Oh, yep. I'm sorry. I just had my uh, – I just had the stats up and – just in my ear, it was auto-playing a Stephen A. Smith video where he just starts off, how do you not go for it? I'm sorry, I just had it pulled up. But, you know, that's that kind of echoes my uh, sentiments uh, with Stephen A. Smith, that just how do you not go for it on fourth and short, you know? The only um, thing but, that stopped them from going for it is that they were on the eight-yard line, which shouldn't really matter when basically that was your season. My biggest thing was, Watching it, I don't know how on the third and goal play, Aaron Rodgers didn't try and run it. I get a linebacker probably would have stopped him before he got into the into the touchdown zone. But yeah. honestly, uh, there's no way in hell anybody could tell me that he wouldn't have gotten five yards and it would have been a much more manageable fourth and goal. Because if he would have ran, there's no way LaFour would have gone, gone against yeah. the fourth and goal and shot a field goal. Absolutely. But I think even if... It was the incomplete pass, and they were down at the eight or the nine. I think Lafleur should have still went no matter what, because you can't really count on getting you getting the ball back, especially against this Buccaneers team where we've seen Tom Brady and playoff Lenny get on these long drives, grind it out. Uh, you know, even though Tom Brady didn't necessarily play that well in this game, he had three interceptions, and you know, I think a lot of people they make trying to make the argument that oh, like, Oh, you know, Tom Brady's not a system quarterback. You know, this is, this is, the, this is not exactly the game to prove it. I mean, he's, he's going to have one of these games. And I really think that the Buccaneers kind of won in spite of Tom Brady's performance. He was a little bit here and there. I think he was able to take advantage of a completely, you know, just iffy Packers defense that almost never shows up in the NFC championship game. I think we're really accustomed to seeing that at this point, uh, especially on Kevin King's part. 
uh, where he kept getting burnt more than uh, just he just kept getting burnt every single play. I mean, it was really amazing to see just I mean, just the the ways the Packers defense, the way that players around Aaron Rodgers just don't show up in the playoffs. It just never happens. Even though Aaron Rodgers, he had 346 passing yards, three touchdowns. He had an interception, though. It doesn't matter because, you know, and that still the same A-Rod. Talked about because of the, it probably should have been a holding call. Yeah. Uh, so, I think I the mean, big problem with LaFleur's play call is that if you didn't go for it on fourth and goal, I don't know how they didn't go for an onside kick. Like, why would you hand the ball back to Brady with less than two minutes to go, he's the greatest quarterback of all time. You're not going to prevent him from getting a first down. Like it's not it, going to happen. It's like a coward's move. Oh, with that, you leave yourself such little time to be able to drive all the way down the field to get something. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a complete coward's move. I, th- I think a lot of people they got the pitchforks out about coaches that take these conservative Charmin soft play calls. Where, well, let's take the points. You know, we're only down, but like this. I think this is the definition of just being too conservative to the, to the point where it absolutely is the wrong decision to make. Cause even if you don't convert on like a fourth and long uh, and you don't get any points whatsoever, you're still deadlocked. You can't say it. We can say at least, well, you know what? At least we had the chance. At least we knew we put ourselves in the best position to win uh, or at least in the best position to tie to go to overtime. Uh, and you know, you could leave it up to the defense, but you know, I, I really think that the Packers, they did not do themselves any favors. Matt LaFleur didn't do himself any favors. You know, this is the second straight year where he just got outclassed, uh, in the NFC championship game. We saw it last year against Kyle Shanahan's 49ers. And now this year against the Bruce Arian led Buccaneers. I think to your point about the defense though, I think the fact that, they, they got three interceptions. They were bad in the first half, though. As much as I agree with the whole conservative coaching thing, I think not enough heat was on Rodgers and that the offense didn't really take advantage of them getting of his defense getting three interceptions on Brady. If Tom Brady is getting three interceptions, especially in a playoff game, you sh- there's yeah. no absolutely no doubt that you should be winning that game. They didn't take advantage of those interceptions. I mean, some of those were three and outs, even after they ha- got good field position on the interception. So I think Rodgers should get a little bit of heat from that. But I, I, all the conversation is going to be on LaFour. The one thing yeah. I don't get is the conversations about him possibly leaving Green Bay. I mean, Green Bay would it's be not absolute fools to see him walk out the door. I, I think a lot of the uh, talk about him leaving Green Bay was just a lot of reporters or just trying to wish cast Rodgers leaving because it would be such a big deal. Kind of like how Favre was leaving Green Bay. You know, maybe that goes back to that. I don't know, but I, I really think it's all a bunch of talk. I, I know Green Bay, they drafted Jordan Love. You know, they expected him to be the future quarterback, even if, you know, Aaron Rodgers is still at this point their franchise quarterback. Uh I still think that they're going to stick around for Rodgers until the duration of his contract winds down. But, you know, it's a, we, always, we often see it a lot, you know, after playoff defeats like this. So it, I, it's I, a crushing I, defeat. You're always going to see right in the heat of the moment, players be like, Oh, I don't know what's going to be the future. I it, credit to him though. He did say on the Pat McAfee show today that he doesn't think he would go anywhere else, but who knows? There's a lot of time until the seat and its season 
what his mindset will be. I don't know if there are many places that are best for him to go. Certainly there are great teams out there that would trade for him and, and want to get him. But I mean, you did make two straight NFC championships on, with Green Bay. You're not that far away. I mean, you're Absolutely. approaching decision here and there away from making it to a Super Bowl. So I think I think he'll stay there. I think it's all just something to drum up a storyline while we wait around for the Super Bowl. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think it's also falls on the Packers front office in terms of roster construction because they were one game away from the Super Bowl last year. And what did they do in the first round? They draft a quarterback who they're not going to play for the next few years. And this was in a draft where we had some amazing talent at the wide receiver position, also a bit at the running back position too. And they did not take advantage of that. And that could have really paid dividends for the Packers. Um, And, you know, we just didn't exactly see it, you know? Uh, So I, I really think that this falls on the Packers on multiple levels through coaching, through the front office uh, and, we kind of have this conversation almost every year with the Green Bay Packers where, you know, over the past 30 years, you know, with two of the best quarterbacks of all time, they're only able to muster two Super Bowl wins mm-hmm. and, you know, so many years of playoff ineptitude and just squandering all these years for your prime quarterbacks. I mean, when does the buck stop for the Packers? But, you know, I think what what does I think what does everybody will view Rogers legacy to be, you know, whether it's coaching problems or whether the Packers didn't put enough support here or there over the years or whatnot. I mean, there is the thing that he he'll have great numbers whenever he does, you know, uh, hang up his boots and, and call it a career. He has the great numbers, but he only has one Super Bowl appearance and win to his name. How, how will that affect his perception of what his career was like when it, it's all finished will be something I guess we'll get to when we get there. But um, the Bucks advancing uh, in a past, uh, in a past the Packers to win the NFC um, and represent the conference in the Super Bowl. So the Buccaneers become the first team in, in yep. NFL history to be the home team in the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl breaking will be the curse. in Tampa Bay. So breaking that, uh, breaking that curse there. I believe, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, Seattle had a chance at it a couple of years ago. There was one team that had a chance at it a couple uh, of years The Vikings. Ago. It was the Vikings in 2017 when yeah, uh, the Super Bowl was in Minnesota. And then they got blown out by the Eagles in Philadelphia. Uh, so that was the closest that a team has been, I think, in the history of it. But... Uh, you know, credit to the Buccaneers, credit to Tom Brady, as I begrudgingly have to say, you know, this is the, his 10th Super Bowl in 21 seasons Incredible. played. It feels like in all my years of being alive, he's been in the Super Bowl for half of those years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really just want him to go away <laughs> at some point. I'm di- I'm tired of seeing Tom Brady in the Super Bowl because at least when we saw him leave the Patriots, we're like, oh, good. You know, at least this is a changing of the guard. You know, we probably don't have to deal with the Patriots anymore, but same old Tom Brady sticking around, uh, probably ending all the talks about him being a system quarterback, Mm -hmm. which I mean, I really think that kind of take was just so far fetched because, you know, we've seen Brady have this much success over 20 years uh, over so many different, you know, you know, dealing with so much different personnel and so many different receivers, you know. 
this guy's been through everything. So, I mean, you know, I think it's enough to give him his roses and, you know, respect the six Super Bowls that he has, maybe even a seventh if he gets it. The accolades are absolutely incredible. I mean, I don't know. Everybody wants to talk about the potential of Mahomes and his longevity and what he could possibly do in his career to try and get close to Brady. But I don't know if we're ever going to be able to see this level of excellence and making it to the Super Bowl. And now he's done it with with two teams, not just one. If we'll ever be able to see that ever again. And like you said, it, it ends the conversation about, Brady and Belichick it was always Brady a lot more than Belichick and we clearly see that now well I wasn't exactly going to say like it was more Brady than Belichick but I I do think that their success came in part due to the work between Belichick and Brady you know um, and the report that they've built and kind of the chemistry in the system that was at play Um, but you know credit to them credit to uh, Brady of course uh but uh, yeah, it's going to be a very, very interesting Super Bowl. And uh... so we'll move on to the other portion of that, what that matchup is going to be. And that's the Chiefs beating the Bills 38 to 24. Patrick Mahomes going 29 of 38, 325 yards and three touchdowns. Um, we saw that great um, McCole Hardman run that, that exemplified that game. And it just really looked like a game. The Chiefs had it the whole time. We saw the Bills jump out to a 9-0 lead, but it was just Chiefs from there on out. And like we talked about with the Packers and Bucks game about conservative coaching, conservative coaching definitely showed up in this game with the Bills where constantly they were down in the red zone and they just went for field goal after field goal up against the Kansas City defense who all year had been the league's worst red zone defense had showed up and scared Sean McDermott's staff enough not to go for it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually uh, just almost a little uh, little prematurely christened uh, Sean McDermott on Twitter as not a coward uh, when he went for it in the Chiefs territory. I believe they still had the lead at that point. So I was like, hey, you know, look at Sean McDermott. Good for him for, you know, having a little bit of – grit you know in his playing call making a ballsy call but then we saw him as the bills were trailing you know decide to put the kicking unit out you know as they're trailing by a 10 and then 15 and you know this is the chiefs are the exact last team that you should be settling for three against because i remember seeing one of the field goals go in and you know they're trailing by i believe it was nine i think it was like a 24 15 game and then the Chiefs sent out McCole Hardman, uh, who had a bit of a redemption after he botched the punt return uh, in the early first quarter, where he just took the ball, ran it all the way downfield. Because, you know, I mean, the Chiefs, they just have, I guess, some of the fastest wide receivers that we've ever seen. Uh, and they were able to punch it into the end zone. And, you know, and that was only in like a couple of minutes. You know, the Chiefs are that team where, you know, if they trail by 10, it doesn't matter to them. You know, we've seen it last year in the playoffs in all three of those games where they were trailing by more than 10 points or at least 10 points. And they came back from each one of those leads. And this is a team where you just cannot be conservative against and say, we'll take the points when we can get them because this team can outscore you no matter what. You do not want to get in a shootout with the Kansas City Chiefs. They do and- it fast. They, they cannot 
a bunch of points on you in extreme, extremely fast way. Like it, it, they don't have to take eight, nine, they don't have to take five, six, seven minutes to drive down a field and, and score one in. I mean, Mahomes throws, throw five passes, they'll get down the field and punch one in. Yeah. And, you know, it also doesn't help for the Bills that Josh Allen, you know, credit for him on the great season that he's had proven the doubters wrong, but we kind of really saw him regress to almost a rookie year form in the AFC title game. You know, he was a little shaky on his throws, even when he had a clean pocket, you know, we really expected him to step up and it also fell on the coaching a little bit to not play into the Bills' strengths of running the ball up and down the field. You know, they didn't exactly they play got away into from game. Yeah, they got away from their strengths. And I think the biggest so, reason why that happened was yeah. the offensive line. They, they just could, I mean, the offensive line constantly could not be able to hold back the Chiefs. I mean, Allen yeah. constantly had to scramble. I mean, granted, he wind up getting rushing yards out of it, but he constantly had to go off and make off schedule throws and whatnot you know, going out of his element. And mm -hmm. it, it was just totally, it, I mean, even when the, the Bills were driving down the field methodically, Allen would get out of the pocket, make a nice throw here and there, rush for a couple yards. You never felt like the Chiefs were threatened, whether, you know, it was nine-point yeah. game or something like that, like the Bills trying to drive down the field. You never felt like they were threatened because Allen was just constantly under pressure. And frankly, a lot of people say the moment got big for them. But I think yeah. for, if you're the Bills, I, I think you got there. You got to accentuate the positives. This Bills team has never been. This was the first time they've been to the AFC Championship since 1993. Um, they've been building for a while. For a time, there was questions over Josh Allen whether he was going to work um, or, or not, and he proved the doubters wrong. Like you said before, he had a great season this year. They. They have something to build around with Stefan Diggs there. Um, so I, I think the future is up for Buffalo. The, it, yeah. There's no doubt they're going to be back here. The problem is you always get that feeling that, you know, is it always a missed opportunity? Even though you're, you have a young team that's going to be around for a while, is it a missed opportunity? Because, you know, you're going to have to go through this guy again. And if, Kansas City keeps this team relatively together for the next three to five years. It's it's just incredibly hard to stop them. I mean, it may even be worse than some of the, the Brady teams were. Yeah, I can definitely see that. But I think you can also hang your hope on the fact if you're a, a fan of an AFC team that, you know, Patrick Mahomes, his $50 million contract, it's going to kick in in a few years. And I believe Travis Kelsey, he also has an extension coming up. I believe Tyree Kill also has one. So the Chiefs are going to be strapped for cash where they won't exactly have that much draft capital or cap space to even, you know, evenly distribute the talent around the team. So I believe if you're a fan of an AFC team, maybe you can hang your hope on that. But we've just seen how much of a generational talent that Pat Mahomes is that perhaps it won't even matter just because of, you know, how much quarterback play is correlated with success in this league. But, you know, I, I think that's the only hope that you really have that the chiefs are just in cap hell and they only have a few great players and maybe a bunch of okay players uh, kind of like the issue with the Falcons have. I mean, of course that's an extreme degree right now yeah. saying that, but uh, I'd say that's about where I, 
I'd basically say that any AFC team has hopes because I, um, I believe who knows any, that, that could become a real situation three years down the line and Mahomes will have a bunch of conference championships and Super Bowl wins possibly by then. So yeah. who knows? There's a give and a take when you are an yeah. organization going for it. And in the AFC, I mean, Mahomes and Allen are, are just the scratch of the surface for young quarterbacks and, and young teams that are going to be coming mm-hmm. through. Baker Mayfield and the Browns are going to be around. Deshaun Watson looks like he might, may stay in the AFC if the Jets do get their way, or if he does go to the Dolphins, he'll stay in the AFC. So he'll be around. Um, so you got other quarterbacks as well that are, are pushing through. So the AF, AFC is loaded in that regard. So now it's yeah. just going to be Mahomes and Allen dominating all the time. So uh, for Buffalo and for anybody trying to get in there, it's going to be a crowded field. Yeah, and I also have to think for teams that are just almost there, like the Ravens and the Bills and the Browns, I think it's also a matter of looking at this season. Uh, These were teams that were outside the playoff picture a few years ago, thanks in part to now having these young quarterbacks come in. But I also think now it's time for them to buff their offensive talent, you know, get use some of that draft capital, you know, maybe break into free agency. I know we have Allen Robertson, Kenny Galladay on the free agency market. So, you know, I really want to see teams kind of stay hungry, you know, and don't settle and say like, you know what, this team, we were kind of a little short here, you know, because I really think that you need to have the mentality that, you know, the Chiefs are the top dog and you got to have the target on their back. Uh, and you have to act like that. You know, we saw in the NBA to a degree with the Warriors where a lot of teams were, restocking you know and moving the pieces around just to try to meet to their level and I feel like at this point it's in the same vein where it's the Chiefs versus the field uh so that'll be very interesting to see but you know how about this Super Bowl Chiefs Bucks and Chiefs Bucks uh you know February 7th we got our Super Bowl matchup set the the master versus the student the goat versus the baby goat what's your predictions I really think that this is going to be a changing of the guard. I really think that Pat Mahomes, he's going to go back to back. He's going to win the Super Bowl again, win Super Bowl MVP again. Uh, But I do think it's going to be a very fun competitive game. I really do think that we're surprisingly going to see the Chiefs defense step up. You know, I really think that a lot of people think this is going to be an offensive slugfest, which I really think that's going to break into the 30s for each team. But I really do think that we're going to see some clutch plays on the Chiefs defense because I feel like a lot of people you know kind of see them in the Mahomes Kelsey Hill led offense they're kind of living in that shadow but I I really like the pieces that they have on defense you know Tyron Matthew Tyron Matthew excuse me I don't know if I was pronouncing that correctly uh yeah you also have um uh I think uh Chris Jones too Mm -hmm. and you have Frank Clark on the Chiefs so I mean, they also have some great pieces on defense, uh, but I really, I really think this is going to be a close game, and it's going to be a fun one. Uh, I'm also going to be interested in seeing just how the Bucks play now that they actually have the home field advantage that mm-hmm. teams have been looking for in the Super Bowl. Um, they'll they'll so, have fans too, so how that will affect them. Although Mahomes has been used to having fans because Arrowhead has been open for fans. Yeah, this season, but this is going to be somewhat hostile territory. I don't know how much because it's only going to be like 22,000 fans, you know, uh, but you know, it's going to be interesting. It's, we're going to see uh, just how it plays out. You know, this is probably 
a very unique season uh, and we're going to have a very unique Super Bowl in that vein. And I only think that it's fitting. So yeah, uh, I, I completely agree on it. So I've seen it in other sports where you see the master versus the student or, um, you know, the, the younger team versus the, the established guard. And it winds up to be um, the student wins. And it's not always a cardinal rule, but I, I've seen it a lot of times. And I think at some point, even though people say, well, over the years, we learned to never bet against Brady and all that kind of stuff. Brady's career and height at the top is going to come to an end. I don't, if it's going to come to an end by him just retiring, it's going to be impressive, but I think it it's going to come on the way of being on the field. And I think the only person who's going to be able to do it is Mahomes and he can be able, able to outdo Brady. The only concerning thing is that the chiefs have two of their offensive tackles out injured that's going to be big and i'm sure uh, jpp and shaq barrett are going to be smacking their lips over that and trying to attack mahomes although it's not like you can ever hold that guy in the pocket because he he can run it like the best of them as well and honestly what's pretty underrated is that patrick mahomes is honestly a pretty hard guy to tackle uh, we've we've seen it a couple times and actually in some of the bills games like the some of the the Bills, like offensive linemen, or they'll have a safety blitzing in there, would get a hand on Mahomes and he'd just brush him off. But I think that's an yeah. interesting thing with the Butts is that um, Jason Pierre-Paul, who we both know as Giants fans, were, was the big uh, pass rusher years ago. He had the, mm-hmm. the fireworks incident that like took three three uh, fingers off his hand. It was and more like whole, two and three quarters. Thing. Yeah, it was like two like and three that. quarters. He, he winds up having to wear a paw because he's lost a couple fingers. Everybody thought he's not going to be the same. He didn't look good afterward. So they just shove him out the door. And now he goes to Tampa Bay where he had a, cu- a couple good years, but now is part of a, a stellar defense that got better over the stretch and is now in the Super Bowl. So I wonder how Giants fans will really view that and that twist that you see. Because that's the exact thing that the Giants fans are talking about needing in the offseason is a great pass rush on the edge. And that guy that we had all that time is now competing for a Super Bowl with Tom Brady and the Buccaneers. It's crazy how that works. But I mean, you know, I'm speaking as a Giants fan here and, you know, we, we've earnestly been looking for an edge rusher and JPP, you know, at the age of 32, typically almost in the elder years in terms of an NFL player, um, seeing him with this much success, I honestly think this is one of his best seasons. Um, you know, it, it's really nice to see. I'm not going to really have sour grapes and saying like, oh, the Giants should have kept him. I mean, of course, you could say that in hindsight now. But, you know, it, it's going to be fun to see, you know, a former Giant have uh, another chance, another opportunity to get a Super Bowl, you know. Uh, and I'm kind of pulling for him a little bit, you know. I think the Bucks, of course, they're, they're going to be the underdog, I believe. Um, you know, I think Vegas, I think they're going to probably set their line. I probably think at double digits for K- Kansas City. Um, but, you know, it's... I believe the last time it, checked, it opened up at, uh, at uh, the Chiefs with uh, winning by three. That was the win- better. Oh, it's going to be a close one. All right. Uh, but, you know, it, it's kind of weird that we get to say that Tom Brady's going to be... A Tom Brady-led team is going to be the underdog, so... Yeah, so we'll see what the Super Bowl brings on February 7th. But with that, 
Gonna move over and of course, with having you on Thomas, we do have to touch on a little bit of college basketball. And Absolutely. Close to home with our St. John's uh, basketball team. And of course, uh, Thomas hosting across the court, our college basketball yep. extraordinaire here. Um, so St. John's basketball last week to recap, had a bit of a resurgence winning, uh, uh, winning their past three or four games. Um, they had that slip up against uh, Marquette at home, but otherwise pretty flawless week. Posh Alexander getting the Big East uh, Freshman of the yep. Week award, averaged 19 points per game last week, 18 points in that big win over nationally ranked UConn, and then 20 points against Utah Valley on the weekend. You had the call for that one. Um, Jam Penny yep. was the Big East player the week prior um, to that in the week where they played Butler and Marquette. So and they now sit six and three. So they got the game against DePaul tomorrow night. Now, how are you feeling if you're a St. John's fan? As always, cautiously optimistic. I know that this is the stage of the season where they can get on a good run. They're playing DePaul. You know, I think some fans are going to overlook DePaul and say, like, you know, it's always DePaul. But, you know, funny thing is I ran John Fanta after the game. You know, a little bit of uh, a flex there, you know. But uh, – <laughs> We, we kind of talked about the DePaul game and, you know, we were kind of also in agreement that this could be a trap game, you know, for St. John's. And I think a lot of fans kind of are underselling DePaul a bit. You know, they still have talent. They still have Charlie Moore uh, still on the team. And, you know, even though DePaul's probably played like only five games this year, you know, I still think that college basketball still operates on a any given night kind of philosophy where no matter what, any team could really win. I mean, we've seen it on so many different times that we've seen, you know, these big upsets come in, but this wouldn't exactly be as much of a big upset because, you know, St. John's and DePaul kind of sit in the lower third of the big East. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, if you're a St. John's fan, I'd say cautious optimism is basically where you should be feeling right now because their defense, finally, they're getting their stride. You know, they held UConn to 70 points, even though they were trailing by 14 and they were trailing by eight with about eight minutes to go, but they were able to pull through. And UConn, they just couldn't nail their free throws. You know, it's crazy, man. Because, like, you know, I don't know, know exactly how to feel about the UConn win because, like, you know, it's great that we finally won at UConn. Great that we won in stores for the first time in, like, 20 years. Ooh. But the thing is, it's like UConn was missing James Booknight, and it's like I'm – and they also missed a hell of a lot of free throws – where I can't exactly say like, oh, you know, I don't know, you know, where I can kind of like respect that win, but, you know, a win's a win nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also had some good performances against Butler, you know, of course, Butler. I also think that they kind of fall in that lower third with DePaul and Georgetown. Well, they have uh, done good lately, but yes. I they agree. have, absolutely. They, they beat Creighton at home. So, you know, I think that they deserve some respect for that. But I mean, uh, in terms of just talent level and, you know, the whole standing of the big East overall uh, you know, I really think that Butler is a game where you have to take care of business. Um, and you also had the Utah Valley game, which I also called uh, was in the building for. Um, and I have to say, I had fears in the first half almost internally. I can't, of course I can't express it on air, but uh, <laughs> it, I, it almost echoed uh, a bit to uh, the St. Peter's and Ryder games yeah. where, you know, it was a close game in the first half where St. John's could never gain any separation on a mid-major team that they should probably be beating by 15 or so. 
but we saw in the second half where the defense held firm and the offense began to pick up, you know, they're finally making their shots, you know, Pasha Alexander making some shots from beyond the arc, you know, Julian Champagne chipping in for 19 points. It's really crazy also to say this, that now that we could say Julian Champagne, like a quiet night for him is like 15, 16 points. And we don't even talk about it. Like the UConn game, of course, like where you only had like, 15 points and you could say like, ah, you didn't really do much. You know, that's very nice to to say now, especially now that like, especially because he's a sophomore and, you know, mm-hmm. it's a nice luxury to have a player, you know, to say like, oh, you know, it was an off night, you know, and it's 15 he's easily points. the best player on this team. He had 12 in that UConn game, but why, why we say like he did nothing was, I mean, he was bad. He, he didn't do well for most of that game, but of course he wind up getting 12. You know, because he was clutch when he needed to be, made some clutch uh, baskets toward the end of that game, clutch free throws. But, yeah, I mean, it's really impressive how he's broken through. I mean, everybody kind of thought he was going to have a breakthrough year this year when he came out with all the the preseason talk and everything. But I don't know if people expected him to break through to be the leading scorer in the Big East kind of breakthrough. And it's been Mm -hmm. impressive to watch. He is is a a problem to defend against because – you know, he's, he's, he's got the size. He can, he can hit you at all three levels. He can score from all three levels. Um, You know, there's no limit to his offensive game, what he's shown. And it's just impressive to see. I think the other thing is what we've been seeing with St. John's and their nice little stretch that they've had lately. Like you said, with the defense picking up and that's correlated with Josh Roberts finally being back in the regular rotation of the team he's at the very least he's not going to provide you a a crazy night consistently of 15 points scoring or whatnot the offensive game isn't always gonna is is not gonna pop out at you but he's a great rim protector and Mm -hmm. his defensive presence even if it don't show up on the stats has really helped St. John's in, in these last couple of games yeah, I mean, Josh Roberts, he's kind of been the player that St. John's has been missing in the first half of the season. I mean, we've seen the amount of points that St. John's has given up in the paint, and they've kind of looked weak in the paint, given up some offensive boards, and, you know, just kind of looking just almost like a turnstile in the paint. But, you know, Josh Roberts, I was it was always a question whenever they Mike Anderson was going to hashtag free Josh Roberts, but it's nice to see now that Josh Roberts, he's getting 20 points per game. You know, he's being an active contributor. You know, he's a great rim protector, a great blocker too, great shot blocker, I might add. Uh, You know, and as you just mentioned, you're not going to be looking for him to stuff the stat sheet with points. You're not looking for him to be this, you know, offensive presence. You know, you're, you're looking for defense out of him. And, you know, he's doing just that, especially after a year where, he just came off shoulder surgery and, you know, we kind of saw him trying to, you know, get back into rhythm, get back to a hundred percent through that first half. So, you know, in this critical stretch of the season where after this DePaul game, you're going to have games like going up against Villanova coming up, you know, you're going to need uh, a great defensive presence like Josh Roberts in the paint. And, you know, I really think that having him back at least to what I believe is a hundred percent full health you know, that's definitely a welcome uh, to have, you know. And Pasha Alexander has also been uh, so impressive. And we talked about his uh, his outside shot that's emerging, and that's going to be huge for him in that a lot of people are knocking him in the first half of the season. He sort of this season so far has been separated into two for Pasha Alexander, and that's 
the first couple games where he was really impressive, everybody was like, well, this kid, he, you know, coming up from Brooklyn, he's the great, perfect New York guard for this system. He was showing out at uh, Mohegan, at Bubbleville and Mohegan Sun and all showing all these kinds of highlights. And then he got onto sports center for the failed windmill dunk in, in, Bubble, in Bubbleville. And then he, had, he went on a, a bit of a cold streak in the latter half of December. And then he's come back on in January, highlighted by the fact that he's starting to show off that outside shot and starting to develop a, a three-point shot. Or in his case, he says it's been there, just hasn't been shooting it. Now he has. And that's going to be huge for the rest of the season for him because teams are going to have to respect that. Yeah, that's definitely good for spacing too for St. John's where they don't exactly that have that many shooters. I know they have Julian Champagny, who's pretty reliable. Vince Cole, who's definitely reliable from beyond the arc. Uh, but it's also nice to have Posh Alexander, a guy who can get into the paint, finish well at the bucket, but also have uh, a respectable uh, three-point shot where – you know, defenses are going to have to keep him honest. You know, they're going to have to be honest with him. Uh, and I remember watching his high school tapes. You know, he's been able to shoot the three. You know, this isn't like it just somehow came along. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was all it was always there. I think it was just the high school to college transition that's often difficult for freshmen. Uh, but now that he's been getting a lot of playing time, he's getting a lot of experience playing in the Big East. He's gotten used to it he's gotten the experience and he kind of knows his role in the offense getting familiar with it you know I I really like his confidence at this point now you know just his ability to score and take control of this team because uh we saw it at uh when he was playing against Utah Valley we also saw it when he was playing against UConn you know uh so it's nice to have and as you mentioned before he's had some cold nights of course in that stretch but I think and also a uh, nice benefit to have with Posh Alexander is that even when he has a cold night, he gets it done defensively. Mm-hmm. You know, he's an active presence on the defensive end of the ball where he just gets you points based off of the turnovers he forces or, you know, the strips on the other end of the court as, you know, the other team's trying to bring it up court or, you know, just trying to catch these bigs for getting the rebounds off guard, you know, so Pasha Alexander, he also does so many things that just don't get seen in the stat sheet either. So yeah, he's he, just going he, to be a huge problem in the Big East if he stays for all four years. Yeah, I think he's going to wind up to have a great trajectory and be a great Big East player. And definitely the freshman of the year award at the end of this year, I think, is really going to be a two horse race between him and Marquette's Dawson Garcia. Um, but Posh, is, uh, we mentioned, you just mentioned about the defense. He is the Big East leader in steals. So he's definitely shown up on the defensive end as well and shows why he's so great for the Mike Anderson system, which always preaches defense. But now St. John's will head into a critical stretch. Um, well, this last week has been critical that they've navigated so far, but heading into a critical game against DePaul tomorrow night. And then facing off against UConn again, if they can win those two games, they move to five and six and a big game against Villanova, whether you do win or not, it will be good to enter that um, five and six, you know, budget for a loss, you're five and seven, you're in a lot better position than you would be if you split these two games, but it's going to be tough to beat UConn twice, but we, they're not going to be without book night again. Um, 
Yeah, so, absolutely. It's, it's going to be a very fun game to at least watch book night play uh, against St. John's. You know, I was looking forward to watching him play against St. John's, but of course he had that injury against Marquette and, you know, it, you know, it sucks to see again for a player like that, like James book. Now he's going to be a lottery pick this year in the draft. Uh, he's just that gifted and that talented. And I think a lot of St. John's fans, they're going to see that when he comes into town this Sunday, uh, but I also think that a lot of fans shouldn't be overlooking the, the DePaul game because as we probably know a lot, St. John's does not play well on the road. Uh, I believe that uh, their win against UConn on Martin Luther King Day was only Mike Anderson's second win uh, coaching St. John's on the road. Uh, and that was in about 15 different tries on the road already in conference play. So, uh, well, I will reassure you with the fact that that other Big East road win in, the, in those two is at Wintrust Arena with the absolutely, absolutely will, against the Paul. We will see. So, lot to talk about with St. John's basketball in the next couple of weeks. We'll see what happens with them tomorrow night in their game against the Paul. Moving on now to um, Major League Baseball, I want to bring to you, uh, Thomas. We had in the past couple hours the uh, headline story about the Hall of Fame um, will not induct any members this year, and that's the first time that will happen for Major League Baseball since 1960. Um, So crazy there. Um, The biggest one, obviously, and the biggest one talked about is the fact that Kurt Schilling is not not going in. Constantly been talked about in the last couple of years trying to make that cut. Um, I'm going to say this, you know, you know, speaking with, you know, Barry Bonds and Barry Bonds and you know, Roger, Roger Clemens, Clemens are the other big like, like that's a different story with the PEDs. That's simple. Yeah. But Kurt Schilling, th- th- this is a whole different yeah. thing where it's just the things that he said over the past few years. You know, I, I don't even want to repeat them on here uh-huh. uh, where I I just I, I can't help but not I don't feel like any sort of sympathy for him i don't like just for having 70 percent votes you know just you know even after he'd made the whole joke about how journalists getting lynched which you know he posted that out there you know and just about just so many other things that you know the fact that he complains about only having 70 percent votes which is is a problem in of itself you know with baseball writers especially after some of them have been doing coverage on the Jared Porter story and also the stories over the past year uh, where, you know, I, I really think that, you know, for baseball writers, I really think that it's just a matter of for Kurt Schilling's sake, just stop giving him attention. That line where I think you always have the line where it is where, you know, is it someone's political beliefs? We just let that aside. Or if it's the other side where it's just, this is just nothing we want to hear. It's just hateful stuff. It, it's you it's know, not, it's not even political. And I think it's the latter. I mean, you yeah. can't, what you referenced before, I mean, you can't even be saying that. So I understand why people don't want to vote them in. Uh, they're bad. Sure. They're, people want to cite the fact that, sure, there are bad people on the Hall of Fame, but you got to look at his situation. Yeah. That, I mean, there are just some things that and, you just can't defend it, and be like, we got to overlook it, this. It's it's nuts. I mean, there's some really bad stuff yeah. that he said that you just can't ignore. Yeah. And I don't really think it compares to the whether I you think the Barry and, Bonds and Roger yeah, I don't I don't think 
totally. I don't think, yeah, I don't think it really compares to whether you induct players who've taken performance enhancing drugs into the Hall of Fame. That's a little bit of a simpler question, but I mean, this is this is something where it it extends to morals really yeah. and just you know basic human empathy and compassion that clearly that Kurt Schilling lacks uh, to say the least. Um, and, you know, I really think that, you know, now that he's said that he wants to not be on the ballot, that's good because you know what? He honestly does not deserve to be in the hall of fame after everything that he said and done over the past few years, you can argue that maybe he's a hall of famer by merit, but absolutely not by character. And you know what? Uh, I'm kind of glad at this point that we're not going to be having this conversation any longer about Kurt mm-hmm. Schilling in the hall of fame anymore. Uh, and I really think that, you know, for I'll speak on to the others now, you know, for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, I really think that, you know, I've kind of fallen in the camp where steroids, where I'm not exactly, I don't exactly know where do you draw the line because how can you be absolutely be certain that players in the Hall of Fame haven't taken steroids before? At least some every single person in the Hall of Fame hasn't taken steroids because that's setting the precedent, you know, and I believe that like, you know, you know, once you draw that line, you know, I, I don't think know the biggest thing is, is that when it comes to um, when it comes to PEDs is that the problem when you bring in Bonds and Clemens is Bonds slightly admitted to the fact that one time he, he might have taken the clear or something like that. But with Roger Clemens, it's more suspicion. He actually went to court and pretty much vindicated himself. So. Yeah. I don't think it's right to keep him out because of, well, he had suspicion around him. Suspicion ain't proof. Like nobody had proof uh, uh, about anything about in regards to Roger Clemens. I, I think the biggest problem with baseball is, is, is the hypocrisy. I mean, Bud Seedlitz voted in and Bud Seedlitz, I mean, oversaw one of the, probably the, in terms of scale wise, yeah. a horrible error in baseball with steroids where, you're looking where people are looking up to their idols in baseball, looking up to this, looking up to that player. Every single time a player would do good. Oh my God, is he doing steroids? Like Mm. what is going on or something like that. And all of these years, it kept on going. This wasn't just a season here, season there lasted for 20 some odd years and it wasn't handled well. I mean, clearly it wasn't cracked down well enough to the fact that it wasn't happening anymore. And to put in the guy who, was the head man in charge during all of that into the Hall of Fame. And then not to, to say, oh, well, those two guys and Bonds and Clemens, they had the suspicions of PEDs on them. We can't put them in. I think it's just absolutely hypocritical. It is. Yeah. And I really think that when with the induction of Bud Selig, that you're basically opening up Pandora's box mm-hmm. of, you know, you know, whether we should induct Barry Bonds and Clemens. I honestly, I'm in the park of, I think, Barry Bonds, just based off of his stats, even before he took steroids alone, are Hall of Fame worthy. Um, You know, it's just, of course, the question of whether what he's done in the second half of career should, you know, wipe that away. But honestly, I really think that you should induct Bonds based off merit, you know, even even in the stats that he has where he wasn't doing steroids. They, they were definitely, he was one of the best play, one of the best hitters. I I think baseball is unique in that. I don't think you ever have a sport that 
constantly. You can have a conversation all, all day about the Hall of Fame selection on its own and how much the yeah. history of it and the hypocrisy of certain people that have been selected in and the whole history of that. Yeah, um, it's just not that's the unique thing about baseball is the Hall of Fame that comes around every year. I, I think it's funny how we can get in these like philosophical discussions about, you know, the future of baseball and whether it's dead, you know, with the new rule changes and whatnot. And yet, you know, at the same time, we can have this discussion almost 20 years later, you know, almost as a seamless transition um, where we were almost I'd say probably 20 years ago where we we'd all be saying, you know, is baseball going to be dying because, you know, of the integrity of the game, uh, with steroid users. Uh, so the more things change, more things stay the same in baseball. And can't wait to have this discourse again next year when Alex Rodriguez and David Ortiz are on the ballot for the first time with Barry Bonds, with Roger Clemens in their last year of eligibility. I cannot wait. It's going to be a fun discussion like it always is when the Baseball Hall of Fame discussion comes around. Um, But let's go a little deeper into baseball. And that is um, starting here in New York with the New York Mets and the offseason that they have had. And um, I talked to you, the big big Met fan over here yourself. um, But the Mets have had one crazy offseason. You've seen the highs with the Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco trade and pending more coming, possibly even Trevor Bauer, which I know your opinions on that. Um, And then you had the whole Jared Porter incident and and scandal and subsequent firing of him. So you had the highs and lows and this Mets offseason has been quite the roller coaster ride. Yeah. um, You know, I'm not going to touch on the Jared Porter thing. You know, I'm glad that he's fired. Um, But you know, I honestly have to say for this stay the season in terms of t- like player acquisitions, I'm saying as a Mets fan, it was a good off season. You know, I think fans, they kind of drank too much of the Kool-Aid thinking, oh, we're going to sign Real Mudo. We're going to sign Springer. We're going to get every single top free agent. But, you know, reality has to set in a little bit, you know, and, uh, you know, we got Francisco Lindor, who is perhaps... I'd say a top three shortstop in the game, you know, just right behind Francis, uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. Um, you know, just an amazing talent. I'm really waiting for them to get the extension for him. Uh, and, you know, this team already has a lot of talent in of itself. Michael Conforto, Pete Alonso, of course, who just had the off year last year, but he's going to be on track to get back. Brandon Nemo, who's insanely underrated. Uh, Dom Smith, who had perhaps an all-star caliber season last year. Uh, I'd say he was probably the second best first baseman in uh, in the National League, you know, right behind Freddie Freeman. Um, so, you know, this team already had a lot of talent there, but it was just a matter of getting them over the top into saying where they can contend, where they can be in the playoffs. Uh, of course, I could say that, of course, they missed the mark on not signing Brad Hand, letting him go to the Nationals, which – I don't really think was in their control. I really think that Brad Hand, he just wanted to go to the Nationals because the closure spot was up for grabs, which you can't say the same for the Mets with Edwin Diaz and Seth Lugo. Uh, but as for the elephant in the room of the Trevor Bauer news, uh, I've probably told you this so many times. I don't know if your listeners know this. I'm not exactly in the camp of signing Bauer for many reasons. Also, in terms of his ability to play, 
Uh, you know, if you want to look throughout his career, you know, he's been uh, a reliable four ERA pitcher. You know, he's a, he's a decent three pitcher. He's not an ace by any means. As much as he wants to play it up, as much as he wants to say he's one of baseball's best pitchers, he's not there yet. You know, he does not have the track record of Scherzer or DeGrom where he can make those statements. Um, you know, just last year when he was traded, not last year, two years ago, I'm losing my track of time. Uh, when he was traded to the Reds, uh, his ERA dropped like a rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can even look two years before that where, you know, he was still just struggling a bit. Um, you know, and he kind of has the expectation that he's going to get three, $30 million of yeah. uh, just a value to his contract. That's not happening, especially given everything. Pitcher, but to be worth cold money is nuts. Yeah, no. And I'm not even touching on the, uh, that this is like the tip of the iceberg of everything that he said <laughs> on Twitter, the receipts are there. You can look them up and just the harassment well, Again, even just this offseason, the whole spat about uh, um, going back and forth about, oh, uh, this stuff, uh, uh, you know, like some of the rumors like and stuff that would be coming out from all the insider sources, yeah. he'd be answering it back and saying, oh, really? I didn't know people knew more about the free agency situation. Yeah. Smacks of arrogance. So that rubs people the wrong way. But either way, I think on the field, I think he's a good pitcher to have, but at a certain price, I, I think um, – you know, I take offense to him thinking as, as a Yankee fan as him thinking that he's worth Garrett Cole money because that is yeah. just absolutely crazy. I don't care if it's on a year contract or whatnot. He's probably in the range of a 15 to 20 million dollar pitcher, in my opinion. And I'm also certain if he was signed by the Mets, I don't I don't exactly know how him and Marcus Stroman would get along. I think if you follow Marcus Stroman's Twitter, you pro- can probably get his feelings towards Trevor Bauer. Uh, and you can also see it um, where he's played. I think in his last appearance with Cleveland, where he threw the ball over <laughs> Kauffman Stadium scoreboard and Tito Francona was fuming. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff like that, that he would get f- just absolutely annihilated for by the New York sports media. You know, I don't exactly think that like how he would adjust to say having a bad start you know, and then having, you know, the New York Post or the New York Daily News, you know, write about him, set out these takes. Like, I don't know how he'd react to that. And I'd probably think that he wouldn't react so kindly to say. Uh, but, you know, I, I just don't think he's worth $30 million. I really think with the way that he posts and the way that he tries to seek attention, really, he's he's playing he's tweeting his way into getting a 20 million dollar one-year contract with the angels at this point and then we do this this whole charade all over again yep i think the angels it seems like it's been down to the mets and the angels but i wouldn't be surprised if the angels do get him god it's constantly every offseason they they need pitching really really badly the angels i mean it's a shame mike trout's prime is getting wasted away there but at the same time, I kind of lost my, bad, you know, feeling bad for him when he signed that big extension. Like you knew, like you could look at it, what was going on. Like he didn't have to sign that big extension. Yeah, he's made but, his bed now. We'll see what happens over the twelve years if the Angels do do something with his prime. Yeah, in his career or not. I, 
I think it, it really would be a big travesty. I mean, we've seen it before with generational players. We saw Ken Griffey Jr. He only had, I believe it was one playoff series win with the Mariners. Uh, I think it was a 95. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but, you know, we've seen it happen before where generational players, their careers are just wasted away. Um, but for Mike Trout, this is a very special case where he's uh, a consistent 10 wins above replacement player, uh, always an AL MVP candidate, and he only he still has no playoff wins whatsoever. He's never played in a playoff game where the Angels have won. Um, yeah. And, you know, now that he's entering his age 30 season or if he's already there, uh you know, it's not, at this point for the Angels, you have to get him to the postseason. At least you have Anthony Rendon, you have Justin Upton. Uh, I believe you let Angel Angelton Simmons go, uh, but you need pitching. And that's the only. I mean, I, they, they they have Joe Adele up in the farm system. They have some nice prospects in the farm system, but I really want to see them make a move. You yeah, know, be, that's to extend his window. Pitching. They have the offense. The only, that's the only thing stopping them. That's their pitching. But I um, just want to get into one last thing before we uh, – oh. Yeah, I, that one. I'm oh, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but uh, one last thing um, before we sign off here um, is today is the one-year anniversary of mm. Kobe's death. So we want to go through some of the, those things. Um, and, you know, one year ago today we lost quite a legend um, – you know, just the incredible competitor that he was. And, you know, what were you just some of your impressions of, of Kobe Bryant? Um, we all talk about him as being the closest thing to, to MJ that he, he, you know, in terms of on the, on the court, that turnaround jump shot and his competitive attitude. But, um, you know, the one year afterward, what's your thoughts on the life, legacy, life and legacy of Kobe Bryant? I mean, you can't say anything more about Kobe Bryant. I know, you know, just seeing the this date come up now, I've been dreading it, you know, because I kind of felt like, you know, we're going through the grieving process all over again. I just remember how last year, how I was just feeling emotionally sick for an entire week, um, you know, and, you know, it, he's just one of the guys where you just think that he's invincible. You know, I, I grew up, remembering watching Kobe in the NBA finals. I remember in 2010 when I was in the third grade, that really stuck in my mind a lot when he won that fifth title uh, in game seven over the Celtics. Uh, you know, I think so many people, they've done a lot of touching tributes and everything. I believe what has been said about Kobe has already been said about his legendary status, but I just really think that, you know, uh, just in more of just a slice of life kind of statement here, just especially after what we've seen over the past year, after all the events that have unfolded. Also, I just really think that uh, I just have to say, just, you just got to take every day one step at a time, you know, really relish it. Cause you just, you just never know when, you know, especially what change. started three months afterward. Yeah, I mean, you just don't know what could change. Uh, you know, I, I just, I'm just gonna leave it at that. But uh, can't believe it's already been a year. Uh, you know, I miss Kobe and Gigi, 
but mm-hmm. even no. the kids too that you know don't want to f- mention them and their lives cut short you know before it really even started and you know it's uh, it's just one thing that you know it hurts for the family that Kobe himself was gone but all those kids that were all gone and those families affected too along with Gigi is just even one year after it was still cut deep and what their lives could have been yeah i i I try to not think about it too much because i I, yeah especially i remember how just the week of when it happened i remember the day after it fell on a monday and I, i was getting ready for my show and on that sunday and all of a sudden my friends started texting me they were like turn on the news, turn on the news. Kobe just died. I'm like, Oh, there's what we're talking about tomorrow on the show and how devastating that absolutely was. And that, that day will forever be ingrained in all of sports fans is mine. I think everybody, even if you're a non-sports fan, that's ingrained um, into your mind. And especially now what happened in that, in this last year, I mean, just, it feels like that was 10 years ago when we were talking about Kobe dying on January 26, 2020, after everything that's happened with COVID-19. So we on January 26, 2020, everybody right in the aftermath was just saying like what exactly you were saying, you know, you got to appreciate every yep. day because you never know when it all, when the ride comes to an end. And um, yeah. you, you can't, that mantra is never more important than, uh, than now and what we've seen with this COVID pandemic and how crazy and tough everything has been uh, in the last year. So it's the sad, um, solemn anniversary that we had to touch upon before we signed off here. Um, but Thomas, um, thank you so much uh, for thank joining you. us. Before we wrap up here, here's your uh, little plug in, get in whatever you would like uh, to say, any uh, stuff you want to advertise. All right. I'd just like to thank you all for listening on to Mike's show. You can also follow me on Twitter at TJ underscore Kavanaugh. That's C-A-V-A-N-A-G-H. You could also follow us, follow my college basketball show across the court at across court. We're going to be starting our live show again next week, next Tuesday, might I also add the second. Uh, so you could also follow us on there. Um, so Mike, I'd like to say thank you so much for having me on your show. Uh, you know, it's just crazy with everything going on. But, um, you know, got to thank you, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Always great talking uh, sports with you. And just, uh, you know, one last thing, I'll get my stuff in here. Make sure to follow us all here on Twitter. You can follow me at, at Michael underscore A Zavo or follow all, any and all updates about the show at, at M at underscore M sports roundup. Um, just like Thomas, we'll also be starting up our, our live shows on WSJU radio next Monday from three to four. So make sure to tune into that starting February 1st. Um, you can also uh, check out all our episodes on Spotify and anchor. So once again, thank you so much for your time, Thomas. Thank you too, Mike. Have a good day, everybody.